0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Samantha Barbas, author of the book The Rise and Fall of Morris Ernst, Free Speech Renegade. Samantha, welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much for having me, it's just such a pleasure.
0: Well, thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
1: Yes, um, I am a professor of law at the University of Buffalo School of Law. I have a law degree, and I also have a PhD in U.S. history from the University of California, Berkeley, and I have done uh, research in the fields of U.S. social and cultural history and also legal history, uh, specializing in media history. I've written on film and gossip journalism I've written on uh, radio and movie censorship, and I've written on the law of privacy and libel as they affect the mass media. So I've covered a number of uh, episodes in history uh, and a number of interesting personalities in my work, but uh, no one has been more interesting than Morris Ernst, I must say.
0: I was saying, having read your book, I, I can see uh, how, you know, Ernst's uh, uh, career touches upon so much of that. What led you to undertake a biography of him?
1: Yeah, so um, as I mentioned, I had done a lot of research on media law and media history. I'd written about film censorship, radio regulation, uh, libel cases in the 1930s and 40s, and I noticed that this man seemed to be everywhere in the field. So Morris Ernst's name was on all of the briefs in the big cases. He had written a number of important books on the subject. He seemed to be, you know, the lawyer and all of these high profile matters in this field. And so I set out to figure out who is this guy? You know, uh, what led him to become involved in this work? I soon discovered that Morris Ernst had left an archive of 600 boxes of personal papers to the University of Texas, Austin. Uh, And now I had done archival research in the past, but never had I come across 600 boxes of material. So to me, this posed a definite challenge. Uh, So I I went down, you know, to to begin looking uh, at this collection and discovered that this man... Was far more important in the history of mass media and free speech uh, than I than I had ever imagined, and so you know I was drawn into his life and his story, uh, and so lucky you know to have had the opportunity uh, to write the book and publish it.
0: One of the things you do in the book that I think is so fascinating is you highlight the contradictions in Ernst's life. Because you, you on the surface, you, you think, you know, here is this person who does so much to shape, uh, you know, uh, the, the first interpretations, of the First Amendment in the 20th century. He does so much to uh, define uh, freedom of speech as we understand it today. And yet you also describe how there are aspects of his life that would seem to run very much counter to that.
1: Yes. And that was absolutely um, the most uh, fascinating aspect of Ernst's life and career. You know, He starts out his career as a very you know, classical free speech advocate, um, promoting viewpoint neutrality, You know, defending freedom for the thought that we hate, uh, defending books that had been banned and films that had been censored. And then he turns into an ardent anti-communist for a you know, number of reasons uh, that, that I can explain later on. But uh, he devotes his, to his career in many ways um, to the suppression of speech and the suppression of individuals who hold views that are contrary to his. Um, and so trying to explain that and make sense of it was a challenge that I faced in the work.
0: The, the, the other aspect of it that I thought was so interesting, though, as I was reading you undertaking that, was how relevant I found it. I mean, in, in one hand, you're writing about someone who's talking about, uh, you know, free speech battles in the 1920s and 1930s, you know, to questions about, you know, you know, knowledge of contraception, uh, the ability to, to to print profanity in books and so forth. And, and then you have the anti-communist stuff. And this might seem to be, you know, of another age. And yet... You know, it strikes me in in recent years how we've returned to a lot of these questions. You know, is you know is absolute free speech such a good thing? Should there be restrictions on it? And seeing how people who you know in, in you know not too long ago were taking absolutist positions are now beginning to say in a different climate, maybe we shouldn't have so much free speech. And, and Morris Ernst seems his his engagement with it seems so relevant in that respect.
1: Yes, I mean that is you know kind of the, the question of the 20th. 20th century and even more the 21st century is how do we, you know, draw lines around protected speech, you know, in a way that protects speech adequately, but still gives protection to other interests, right? Like reputation and privacy and safety. And, uh, you know, the line is, is constantly shifting based on social circumstances and public opinion. And it's not clear that there's a really a right place to draw the line. Uh, and so we see, you know, Morris really grappling with that question, as, as many, you know, do today.
0: I was wondering if you could start us off by telling a bit about his uh, early years. Like who, what was his uh, family like and uh, what were the circumstances that launched him into a career in the law?
1: So Morris Ernst was born in 1888 in Uniontown, Alabama, which is kind of, a, you know, <laughs> unexpected um, locale. Uh, for the birth of a civil liberties leader, uh, Morris Ernst's father, Carl, had immigrated to Alabama from the Czech Republic in the 1850s. And this, again, was very unusual. Uh, There were not many uh, Jewish immigrants to Alabama in this time. Uh, Morris Ernst's father worked for a while as a pack peddler, and that was someone who put on a big backpack, uh, put in it dry goods, such as, you know, thread and flour and other household supplies. And he peddled it to rural families in the community. Uh, and through this work, he saved up enough to open a general store in a small town. And then the family moved to New York after Morse was born. And uh, the father was a uh, real estate person, rather successful, Uh, they were moderately well off. And uh, Morris began to run in sort of elite uh, circles at the time, a German Jewish community that was highly educated. Uh, Morris's mother had come from uh, that community and, you know, they were part of it in New York. And um, I I think this experience was very formative in shaping Morris's identity. He was uh, friends with people who were very cultured and very sophisticated. And while Morris's own family was affluent, uh, he wasn't at the top of his social circle. And he felt a sense of, of insecurity. He felt that he needed to find a way to kind of stand out uh, among these very distinguished individuals. And he learned that the thing that he could do that made him uh, you know, a, a person uh, to be noticed, was to be a provocateur. He became an expert at finding ways to draw attention to himself by being controversial, by saying something flamboyant, right? by making a wild assertion. And uh, this really defines his you know, entire career somebody who's a showman and who's adept at uh, attracting attention. So uh, Morris goes to Williams College, Uh, It's a liberal arts college in Western Massachusetts, and he succeeds there. Uh, However, uh, anti-Semitism in the professions at the time kind of prevented Morris from getting the kind of job after college that many of his uh, Williams cohorts had been able to attain. So Morris started his career as a manager in a family-owned garment factory in Brooklyn. Uh, then, uh, after a couple of years, he worked as a salesman in a furniture store. Recognizing that these occupations were not going to give him the intellectual satisfaction that he craved, he went to law school, night school, uh, New York Law School, and uh, graduated. Uh, again, uh, the the you know anti-Semitism of the legal profession was quite profound at this time, barred him from entering any type of established law firm in New York. So Morris and a couple of friends who were Jewish law graduates of Columbia University created their own firm called Greenbaum, Wolf, and Ernst. This firm would eventually become very respected and known for its work in the field of literary and media law. But when it started out in 1915, it was just a couple of guys in a nearly empty room, a uh, few beat up desks. They couldn't even afford to pay a secretary. They were taking any kind of case they could get, you know, car accident cases, uh, criminal <laughs> cases, uh, and it was a very, very humble beginning. Uh, but that is how Morris Ernst, you know, made his way in, into the field of law.
0: So, you, you we describe how when, he, when he's starting out, he has this small firm, and they're they're really kind of. You know jacks of all trades. They're they're they they're doing wills, they're doing, you know, deeds. They're you mentioned they're they're sometimes doing accident law and everything. How does he, you know, where does he find this this you know transition? Is it something that has always kind of been there for him, or it does he stumble into this uh career and 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 what is it that ultimately draws him to defining himself as a free speech crusader?
1: Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting path. Um, Morris begins going to progressive meetings at night. And when he made progressive meetings, you know, th- this was the time of the, the progressive era, uh, progressivism referring to the social movement at the time that was trying to curb some of the uh, negative um, you know, social and economic effects of industrialization. So the progressives fought for uh, minimum wage laws, right? They wanted to end uh, child labor. They wanted to clean up the tenements, so forth. And Morris becomes involved with a number of progressive organizations in New York and kinds of kind of makes a name for himself as a um, rising young activist. And it was through this that he got acquainted with Roger Baldwin. Roger Baldwin was a social reformer who was then creating the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, the ACLU grew out of the World War I era and in the intensive government repression of dissent during the war. Uh, the ACLU was formed to defend socialists, pacifists, anarchists, and other dissenters who had been persecuted uh, for their beliefs. And Baldwin, who is a character in his own right, a very um, complicated and charismatic, ultimately very charismatic man, um, needed to find people to help him build up the ACLU. And so he called on Morris to help him with money and also to help him with the law. Now, the ACLU in the beginning wasn't a legal advocacy organization uh, as it later became. It uh, did a lot of direct action work, you know, protests, standing on the streets, you know, calling for free speech. But in the 1920s, it began to turn its attention more and more to the courts as a forum for winning free speech rights. And so, you know, the services of lawyers like Morris uh, became increasingly important to the organization So uh, Morris gets involved in the ACLU in the 1920s, and I think it's through his affiliation with that group that he begins to really embrace uh, free speech as a cause and an ideal.
0: One of the things that uh, I I thought was fascinating as I was reading your book was this notion of timing in that you you describe how when when he goes to law school, it's at a time where these nighttime law schools, the opportunity to become a lawyer, even as you're working full time, becomes a possible and then how Ernst is there. He's not one of the founders of the ACLU, as you make clear, but he's there early on when they're beginning this. And, and then there's also this, this broader climate, w- which seems to create opportunities where none existed. I was wondering if you could talk, perhaps, a bit about what that free speech climate was like, because you, you, you uh, in your book, you talk a bit about the context, Anthony Comstock, uh, the the you know suppression, the use of of laws to suppress the transmission of ideas through the mails. you know, uh, the use of customs laws, how, what was the climate of free speech like before you see Ernst's uh, groundbreaking litigation? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I I think it's safe to say that, uh, you know, things were very repressive (laughs) as far (laughs) as freedom of speech goes. And uh, I mentioned, you know, this this, uh, intense, uh, you know, crackdown on dissent during the war years. Um, there was no such thing as a First Amendment law yet. There was uh, no such thing as a, you know, a body of free speech jurisprudence. The Supreme Court had not addressed the First Amendment in any significant way, you know, prior to the 1920 s. Public opinion was very hostile to the idea of free expression. It was widely thought that, those who were different from the majority, those who had unorthodox views, those who were unpatriotic or un-American should not have the right to express their thoughts lest they subvert the social order. And that you know, held in the realm of politics and political speech and also in the realm of you know, uh, the arts. As you um, suggested, you know, there were um, strict obscenity laws The Comstock Law of 1873 um, and all the states had obscenity laws that were similar that uh, criminalized selling, publishing, possessing material that was deemed obscene. The reigning definition of obscenity was very, very broad. Something was considered obscene if it had a tendency to corrupt the most vulnerable person into whose hands material may fall, meaning that if a book or a work of art would have the tendency to corrupt a child, that's, you know, outlandish, uh, then, then it could be declared obscene. So there was not a lot of tolerance for sexually themed material, you know, for anything that kind of contradicted the strict Victorian, um, morals, uh, of the time, uh, and so, uh, you know, the, the, there was a lot of work to be done, you know, to, to put it, put it mildly and, and the ACLU and Ernst pursued that on, on many different fronts.
0: I, I was, one of the things that, that he does that you describe in the book, or at least he tries to do is he tries to invoke, uh, you know, prof, uh, the, the opinions of professionals or the judgments of professionals. And I was thinking, especially in terms of the cases that involved say contraception and medical practice, and it, it. it gives a sense as to how the times are changing, not just in terms of, of tolerance of free speech, but also in terms of how you're starting to see discussions of these things in ways in which that provide the groundwork for saying, this isn't smut, this isn't obscene, this is, you know, in, in, in an age where we're beginning to look at things more scientifically, where we're beginning to have a better medical understanding of things. We need to talk about these things in order to convey that knowledge.
1: hmm yeah, and that was actually Morris's main argument in these cases where he defended banned books or you know, birth control uh, that was you know, uh, deemed to be obscene, or even writings about birth control were condemned as obscene. And Morris's tack was always to um, talk about public opinion and, and scientific opinion and expert views uh, to make the argument that these obscenity laws are really old-fashioned. They reflect the 19th century and the kind of puritanical thoughts of that time. And in a time that you know, was before modern science, but now people are becoming more enlightened. Um, we're entering an age of, you know, greater um, you know, scientific understanding and, and greater sexual freedom, you know, in the twenties, women were wearing short skirts and you know, we have Hollywood films and tabloids. And uh, he, he would always try to make the point that the law must keep um, in touch with reality, the law has to be updated to reflect social conditions as they actually exist, uh, and science. You know, the, the, in the state of modern science. Um, and-
0: now, you described that as one of his uh, tools when he was arguing his cases. Was how exactly? What kind of attorney was he? Was he? Was did he rely upon uh, a thorough understanding of the law? Was he a bit more of of, of a showman and a dramatist? Uh, did he? Uh, you know. Uh, try to, you know, find new ways of using precedent. How exactly, you know, did he work in the courtroom in terms of his advocacy for his clients? Yeah,
1: so uh, Morris was extremely uh, non-traditional, to put it mildly. Um, He was, you know, what we would call a a legal realist. Uh, He would often say, you know, uh, the outcome of legal cases, you know, was dependent on what the judge had for breakfast. You know, meaning that uh, law was a human endeavor. Uh, it was decided by, cases were decided by judges and, and juries. And, you know, you could argue precedent all day long. Uh, but if you hadn't kind of touched the, the hearts and the minds of the, you know, those who were deciding the cases, then, then you are not likely to win. So some would say that Morris kind of played fast and loose with legal precedent. He wasn't, you know, scrupulous and adhering. Uh, to the formal rules, uh, some of his other legal colleagues were, uh, but you know his uh, main tactic was to often you know kind of turn uh, courtroom proceedings or trials into shows, you know. And he was a great public speaker, and he would bring in props into the courtroom, and sometimes he would try to plant uh, editorials uh, in you know uh, newspapers to try to convince. Uh, you know, judges uh, that they should rule a certain way in a case. And he was extremely uh, ahead of his time, kind of in his his knowledge of uh, the importance of of public relations and, um, you know, public opinion in the outcome of cases.
0: Hmm. Well, um, I was wondering if you could perhaps, you describe in in your book uh, the, the major cases in which he, you know, established this free speech, this First Amendment jurisprudence. I was wondering if you could perhaps highlight one or two that you think are especially noteworthy or perhaps best representative of what Morris Ernst was doing during this period.
1: Sure. So I think it's probably most appropriate to talk about the Ulysses case. And that's really Ernst's claim to fame or or, or one of his most notable cases. Uh, He defended Uh, James Joyce's Ulysses in 1932, and Ulysses was, of course, uh, the most notorious banned book of the time. But just to say a little bit about how Morris got involved in the fight against literary censorship. Um, So I had mentioned the the Comstock laws, uh, and uh, those laws were passed in the 19th century, but they were being Very actively enforced in the 1920s, uh, there was a group in New York, a private kind of vigilante society called the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. And this organization had actually been deputized by the state to help it prosecute individuals under the state's obscenity law. So uh, this vice society would conduct bookstore raids, they'd go into stores where obscene books were allegedly obscene books were being sold. You know, the, the, stores would be raided, all the books would be burned. The bookseller would be jailed. It was a, it was a very you know, spectacular and kind of grim situation. So um, Morris is called on in the 1920s to defend a struggling author whose books had been seized. Uh, and, Morris goes to court and loses badly, and the loss really makes him angry. He starts to think about the absurdity of this obscenity law that is so vague and that is so repressive, and he sets out to write a book that's basically a condemnation of obscenity law. It's called To the Pure, a study of obscenity and the censor, and this book made him an expert in the field, and then everybody starts asking Morris you know, to help him. Uh, defend uh, their books. So by the 1930s, uh, early 30s, Morris had won so many cases in the literary censorship field that that he had the confidence to try to liberate, as he called it, the the most notorious banned book of the time, and that was Ulysses. So um, Ulysses was published in 1920 in Paris, And it was almost immediately condemned in the United States as obscene. Nevertheless, people read Ulysses in the U.S. The book was smuggled in, you know, it was wrapped in brown paper covers and treated like contraband. But people read it and it was um, highly successful and it it was very well regarded um, by I, lit- literary critics. Yeah.
0: I, I was thinking about that 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 part in your book where uh, where uh, Ernest is trying to uh, est- establish the groundwork for a case and he's trying to get customers to seize a book and they've opened it up and it's like, oh, we're not going to seize this book. We see so many copies of this coming through as it is.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so Morris uh, decides to have a test case and it would involve um, the the tariff law, which allowed customs officials to seize obscene books. And he was going to challenged the seizure. He had books sent from Paris, but they wouldn't seize the book for that reason. they said, oh, so many (laughs) people bring this in. We've just given up trying to stop the entry. And so Morris goes down and says, no, you seize the book. And then they did. And and that's how his famous um, test case began. But uh, the way Morris did this test case, um, he actually arranged with Bennett Cerf, who was the the publisher of Random House, um, this very shrewd deal. Uh, He said to Cerf, you know, work with me to legalize this book, and um, you don't have to pay me anything. But I want five percent of the royalties if you know Ulysses is legalized and, and you publish it. And of course, the book was cleared, and Morris made a lot of money off the publication of Ulysses by Random House. Um, so the the test case goes before a judge called John Woolsey, who was a very eccentric judge. He was kind of a literary man. He thought of himself as very well-read. And Morris makes the uh, case before Woolsey, again, that uh, obscenity law must be updated to meet the temper of the times, uh, that uh, you know, works must be judged on the basis of community standards, Works must be judged as a whole. In the past, you know, book could be declared obscene on the basis of isolated passages. And Morris makes a very famous argument, and it's probably one of the most memorable courtroom arguments of his time, um, involving the, the F word. And so that was one of the bases for the books having been declared obscene, is it it profanity in the book. And Morris wants to try to convince the judge that there's nothing dirty about that word. It's just arbitrary, you know, four letters in you know, random order. And Morris says to Judge Wolsey, um, moreover, you know, this word is cleaner and less revolting than a phrase used every day in every modern novel to describe exactly the same thing. And Judge Woolsey says, and what might that be, Mr. Ernst? And uh, Morris says, they slept together. It means exactly the same thing. And Woolsey said, uh, but counselor, that isn't even usually the truth. <laughs> so it was in that moment, you know, when Morris knew that he had won the case. Um, but that's, you know, that that's very Morris Ernst style, just to do something totally over the top. But he succeeds.
0: You, you mentioned this. The shrewd ag- arrangement that he made with uh, Joyce's uh, American publisher to, and it this you know sets him up for life, and it's, it's one of the things that that uh, I, I was really surprised by it, is that you know how not only does is he this incredibly you know successful free speech attorney, and he is has this, has this growing profile not just in terms of the legal community but nationally, but he also is becomes enormously financially successful. <laughs> And, and, and how this, you know, and, and I, I thought it was just so fascinating to see how that because it, it, it's something that I thought about as I thought about you know his later years and 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 how you know the degree to which you know did, did that change him in any way or because uh, as you described early on you know he wasn't you know quite the opponent of communism that he became. By say the early 1930s. Uh, but he is nonetheless, he, he becomes this, this this national celebrity who writes columns, who produces books, who uh, appears on radio, and 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 he is is really uh you know notable for that.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, his his life was uh, successful in in so many ways. I mean, as you say, he was wealthy. Uh, that had to do in part with his very successful legal practice for his paid clients like you know, banks and real estate companies. And, you know, he, he was a master of you know, very technical areas of commercial law. Um, and uh, he had a very lavish lifestyle, which, again, is something you kind of don't associate with someone who is doing public interest work and, you know, <laughs> fighting for rights. He had this lavish estate in Nantucket, second home. And he would go there for three months each year, and not do any work. I mean, this was before cell phones and email, and he would just sail and you know uh, make uh, furniture you know for for three months uh, without doing any any legal employment. And so a phenomenal, you know, lifestyle that he he made for himself. Um, but he did you know become also a public intellectual, a public figure, especially after Ulysses, he had. Books he wrote twenty one books in his lifetime, newspaper columns constantly on the radio. He was sort of the kind of uh, he was like a pundit, like we'd see on CNN today, right? Somebody who was a talking head, you know, and a personality. Um, just a, a, a stunningly successful career.
0: Yeah, and you also mentioned an aspect of this that I, I, that you later highlight as being significant in terms of this rather unorthodox association, which is that in the 1930s, of course, you're talking about the great depression, uh, the Franklin Roosevelt wins the white house in uh, 1932. And it, you know, you had the new deal and that, and it's, you know, oftentimes described as, you know, it's, it's the lawyer's new deal. And you have uh, this massive legal, uh, you know, injection of, of lawyers into, uh, in, into Washington D.C., into federal uh, government, and and Ernst, you know, he's you describe him. He's not at, at the at involved in this. He he never uh, he he never becomes a judge. He never uh, a, assumes a, a position in uh, the uh, federal government. But you describe how he becomes the, this. You know, maybe kind of like a, a satellite uh, with Franklin Roosevelt. He's associated with him, a, and and how you know. And you also described I thought this was especially fascinating, the effect this has a bit on his ego. (laughs) (laughs) Right,
1: right. So after Ernst's victory in the Ulysses case, uh, he kind of becomes convinced that that he could really be a player uh, in politics. And Ernst never runs for office, uh, but he does forge a lot of connections with important figures in the New Deal, administrators, policymakers, and actually Roosevelt himself. Uh, Morris starts writing to Roosevelt, saying, "Do you need my assistance? You know, you're you're my idol. Can I help you in some way?" And so, Morris does become involved uh, in in New Deal um, politics in a way. Uh, he becomes what one journalist called a fixer for Roosevelt. Uh, he uh, that may be too strong of a term, but he did you know help Roosevelt negotiate deals and, and paper over conflicts, and was involved in various foreign missions, Uh, Ernst uh, was good friends with Felix Frankfurter, uh, who, of course, uh, would be on the Supreme Court, and a number of other um, well-placed New Deal officials. And it's interesting that Morris himself thought that that was his greatest contribution to history, was influencing the New Deal and Roosevelt's uh, reforms of the 30s. But I don't think anyone else would see it that way. Uh, you know, but he it really did stoke his ego, as, as you suggested, you know, to think that he could be um, associating with these you know, uh, national officials is very gratifying to him.
0: This is also the point at which you start to see him coming out more prominently against communism. And I was wondering if you could talk about that relationship, because it's it's an undercurrent throughout much of his early career. This association with communism, which in the 1920s was this, you know, radical, uh, you know, not quite fringe uh, uh, ideology, but it was one in which you know he Ernst's attitude beginning is a little different than his attitude is in the 1930s, but you have this. A time when, when communism is being accepted by a lot of people uh, as being, you know, the alternatives being either, you know, democracy has failed, capitalism has failed, it's either fascism or communism. We have a lot of people gravitate towards communism. And yet early on er, uh, during this period, Ernst is, is, is beginning to uh, make, take a more strident uh, opposition to it. Why does he do this and and how does he and how does this fit with his advocacy for free speech?
1: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Great question. Um, So, as you you know point out, um, the 1930s was a time when uh, the Communist Party uh, was gaining uh, you know a a great popular membership in the United States because, of course, this was a time of economic crisis, and many Americans became quite skeptical of capitalism and the status quo. And communists were offering an ideology that seemed hopeful. You know, communists were organizing labor unions and and directly addressing circumstances of the Great Depression. Uh, Many liberals uh, became involved in um, communist-affiliated groups uh, of the time, uh, and some of those uh, individuals were involved in organizations that Ernst held dear, like the um, ACLU, of course, and also the, the National Lawyers Guild. This was an association of progressive lawyers that Ernst founded in 1937 to help uh, promote the New Deal. Um, Ernst was very upset at the presence of these uh, communist-affiliated individuals in these groups. He felt that they were breaking apart the groups, creating factions, uh, that they were subverting liberal groups to potentially anti-democratic purposes. that they were tainting the public image of these groups. It was, it was very bad, you know, for the ACLU to be publicly associated with communism. It was a definite liability, you know, at a time when the House Un-American Activities Committee was getting started and, you know, see the beginnings of an com- anti-communist witch hunt. Uh, but most of all, Morris was upset because many of these uh, radicals, as he called them, were challenging his authority and his leadership of these groups, and he comes to feel that um, these groups must be purged of their communist members. And he sets out uh, to do exactly that in some you know, um, actions uh, that were quite questionable in the late
0: 1930s. And this leads to this fascinating association with J. Edgar Hoover. And that, that's one that uh, continues Oh, in, from, from, you know, in Ernst's mind, clearly uh, for the rest of of his life. But uh, as you described, it's really over the next couple of decades. Uh, How, what does Ernst see in Hoover and how does he make himself available to Hoover and how does Hoover utilize him in this anti-communist fight?
1: Yeah, this is such a bizarre story. Um, But again, you know, it's kind of classic Morris Ernst. Um, Morris, Got acquainted with Hoover. I think in 1938 they met through mutual social connection, and Morris becomes basically duped. Uh, you know, he's duped by Hoover. He is convinced that Hoover is a great crusader against communism, and that the FBI is really this professional and progressive law enforcement organization that does not violate anyone's civil rights or civil liberties. And the FBI, he believes, must be protected against criticism at all costs. So Morris takes it upon himself to become kind of an informal public relations agent for the FBI. He writes positive articles about the FBI for the press. Uh, He has a lot of connections in the media, so he's able to find out whenever a negative piece about the FBI is coming out. He'll try to quash that article. It's sort of ironic for someone who... um, devoted himself to fighting against censorship. Here he's trying to censor articles that are unfavorable towards the FBI. Um, He often would advise Hoover on how to respond to critical commentary in the press. Perhaps, uh, you know, most tragically, uh, Morris becomes a sort of spy within the ACLU (laughs) for the FBI. He would alert Hoover As to when members of the ACLU were planning to criticize the FBI, he would forward to Hoover minutes of ACLU board meetings and correspondence with his ACLU colleagues. And this was such a a terrible betrayal of the group that he had helped to build up and his colleagues and friends. Uh, And, you know, why he did that, I mean, obviously he was um, totally immersed in in the anti-communist crusade, but I think there was also a way in which Morris idolized Hoover in the same way that he idolized Roosevelt, you know, is uh, and almost kind of just lost his mind. You know, he would send these letters to Hoover saying literally, like, I love you. You know, uh, what can I do to help you? You are the great protector of democracy. He was really kind of fawning uh, and and kind of uncomfortable to read. You know, <laughs> just in this, you know, adulation. Um, and that lasted, you know, until the late 1950s, when actually Hoover cut off Ernst. Uh, Morris had done a lot of questionable things uh, that were covered heavily in the media. And I think Hoover decided that having Ernst connected to him was actually a liability.
0: I, I thought it was interesting when you talk about Ernst's involvement with the Rosenberg case, because I, I thought it spoke to how Ernst saw his relationship with Hoover, how he saw thought that. It, it showed how sincerely he believed that Hoover was about, you know, uh, you know the Constitution and, 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 and defending these things. And, well, if, if that is true, then by extension, and you feel that the Rosenbergs have been unfairly treated, by extension, Hoover should be on their side. And, of course, that was exactly the opposite of Hoover's attitude on the case.
1: Yeah, Morris, on his own accord, um, tries to get on the Rosenberg's defense team for the purpose of collecting information to give to Hoover. Uh, that never happened. Uh, you know, his, his efforts to get involved were rejected. Uh, but it's a shocking thing, you know, to think that uh, Morris had, you know, gone so far uh, as to, you know, be able to square this with his conscience.
0: So in this by this point you, you, uh, in your book you're, you're talking about this you get you give the impression that you know at this point a lot of what Ernst has done in terms of his legal achievements are increasingly behind him mm-hmm. and but it's it's more than just the fact that you know he's established his jurisprudence and he's shaped the law and that's done you start to talk about how his attitude evolves especially when you get into the 1960s and you start to see a lot of social changes there uh, taking place. Uh, in effect, a lot of the, uh, ramf- uh, you know, the, the, the uh, speech environment that, that Ernst has helped to foster now leads to things that, that, that cause him to shift his opinions.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, the latter part of Morris's career, I would say from the 1940s on, it's more or less, you know, a, a story of decline. Um, he becomes immersed in his work for Hoover and is also his work for Roosevelt for some period of time and doesn't pay as much attention to his civil liberties efforts. Uh, he's more concerned with being a pundit and, you know, an advisor uh, to powerful figures. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, he does a number of um, things to um, you know, cause him to fall out of favor with his liberal colleagues Uh, At one point, as I describe in the book, uh, he represented a uh, Dominican dictator. (laughs)
0: Uh, (laughs)
1: Solely, it appears, in a bid to to gain publicity for himself because he knew he was fading from the spotlight, right? Uh, He was not being called on to, you know, represent high-profile cases or to offer his opinions. He was becoming a relic, and this disturbed him. So he engaged in a lot of um, questionable activities, by 1960, and now Ernst is, you know, in his 70s. Um, he uh, had simply passed uh, from from the public sphere, and uh, he retires to his estate in Nantucket. His wife dies; uh, that was a very uh, significant loss for him. Uh, he becomes bitter and depressed. I think it's safe to say, uh, and begins to question some of the accomplishments of his earlier career. And as you mentioned, you know, at one point he wonders if the sexual freedom that he had fought for had really gone too far. And so now we're in the sixties and it's the, it's the hippie era. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, I guess people generally grow more morally conservative, the older they get. (laughs) Um, but, but he also comes to believe that, um, freedom requires a certain amount of privacy. Uh, in other words, you know, particularly in, in sexual affairs, right, that it wasn't necessarily a good thing if, uh, if everyone was, you know, disclosing everything, kind of letting it all hang out, that there was a, a certain amount of reticence um, that was necessary for, for dignity uh, in personhood and that, that the, you know, things uh, had, had gotten a bit out of control. Um, he never actually called for government censorship even in his uh, final years, he believed that society should self-police and the media should self-police. He thought that TV stations should not uh, show nudity, for example, you know, that they should um, you know, exercise self-restraint um, to help keep the culture um, civilized. So he, he did turn a little bit in his uh, final decade
0: that was the part of your book i I, I thought was, was was most surprising is how it would he, it's he seems to basically it's like he was beginning to conclude maybe there is such a thing as too much freedom of the press and he while well, you're right he never you know sat there and said I made a mistake by by doing all this there is the sense that he was beginning to appreciate that maybe some sort of control was needed it albeit you know all, self-control mm-hmm. rather than uh you know imposed control-hmm mm-hmm. What, would you th- what do you think is, is Ernst's legacy in that respect? I mean, can, can we look at him just in terms of, of free speech, or is it more complicated by stands like that and, and his association with Hoover?
1: Yeah, I think uh, there are many um, lessons to be learned from Ernst's life. I think he um, left behind a very complicated legacy. I mean, first and foremost, I think, you know, Morris Ernst's great influence was on the law of free speech. Um, Between 1920 and 1950, there was really a free speech revolution in the United States. Uh, In 1920, there was no free speech law, no First Amendment law at the Supreme Court. By the 1950s, the Supreme Court has developed an entire structure of the First Amendment, uh, adopting many of the principles that Ernst and the ACLU had promoted, like viewpoint neutrality, like, uh, you know, no prior restraints or gag laws. Uh, a more limited definition of obscenity, uh, broad freedoms for political speech. The censorship of literature had almost completely declined by the 1950s. The Vice Society actually shut its doors in 1947. Uh, So in that sense, you know, Morris Ernst's influence is truly profound. Uh, Ernst also really turned the ACLU into a mainstream organization. When it started in 1920, the ACLU was totally considered uh, a bunch of subversives, uh, kind of a fringe group. Um, They were reviled, you know, they were called free speech fakers. (laughs) They were um, (laughs) as hated as the people they defended. And then by 1945, when the ACLU had its 25th anniversary, the event was actually held at a fancy New York hotel. And a uh, Truman sent a telegram of congratulations. Uh, and Arthur Garfield Hayes, who was one of the lawyers, uh, main lawyers, said, uh, you know, in the old days, we used to go down in the coal fields and hold protests and try to get ourselves arrested. And now we file briefs. And, you know, governors speak at our dinners. So the, the whole group had become socially accepted and you know, the principles they stood for had become increasingly accepted. And I think Morris had a lot to do with that. I and mean, he was a prosperous lawyer, he was educated, you know, he was uh, respectable and he, he helped transform the image of the ACLU. He also brought the ACLU's interests into the New Deal through his connections with you know, the, the uh, officials in the Roosevelt administration. But, uh, you know, I think even beyond that, you know, kind of have a classic story of um, somebody who uh, wanted power, uh, attained it, and was ultimately corrupted by it and and misled by it. And that that led uh, to his downfall. It's, you know, the the classic story, uh, but you see it kind of played out so very painfully in Ernst's saga.
0: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Yeah, so um, I have just finished another book, one a famous uh, Supreme Court case from 1964 called New York Times versus Sullivan. And this is a First Amendment case that dealt with libel law and ultimately placed um, limits on the ability of public officials to sue their critics for libel and recovered damages. It became of a landmark case that is also um, potentially uh, coming under criticism. And there's some talk that the Supreme Court may revisit and overrule this case. Uh, so uh, I've been very interested in it.
0: Well, I hope that uh, when the book is published, we can uh, have you back on the New Books Network to talk about it.
1: That would be wonderful.
0: Well, Samantha Barbas, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thank you. You too.